Let's turn, then, people of God, at this time to God's Word, and we want to read from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. In the consistory room before the service, we were, some were saying, is it Habakkuk or is it Habakkuk? Uh, where do you put the emphasis? Habakkuk? But anyway, it's a book that we don't hear uh, a great deal about, and uh, you may not have heard messages on this book before, but uh, we do like to consider it as a fitting um, book for and message for our times, and so I thought of using that this evening to uh, call your attention to the message of this book. Uh, the, uh, it's one of the fine minor prophets, so it's a small, small book, maybe a little bit hard to find in your Bibles, and it's handy that we do have the page reference here. Um, you will see that uh, in the order of worship. So if you will turn to that page, 855. <clears throat> We're reading from uh, the entire book, uh, portions of it, that is to say, uh, and uh, what I will be, what I would like to do is, uh, <clears throat> first of all, read the first chapter. <clears throat> and we'll be reading the entire chapter and the entire chapter one. <clears throat> Then we'll read a verse or so from chapter 2, verse 4, and then I'll read a few verses from chapter 3. We'll bring these, we'll tie all of these together in the message here uh, this evening. <clears throat> Habakkuk, and we read God's holy inspired word here in the first chapter, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. 
Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And then in chapter 4, listen to verse 4, where the uh, prophet writes this. It's the Lord speaking to him. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's that last sentence that really is key. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And then in chapter 3, if you will turn there to uh, verse 17, the ending of the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. And the Lord bless us, Lord, congregation, as we look into God's word here this, uh, this afternoon. Let's pray for his illumination at this time. Oh, Lord God, we need you to lead us and to guide us into your truth at all times. And certainly also then here this afternoon, as we've just read this portion of your word from a prophet of old, that you inspired him to, to write, we pray that you will help us to discern and to learn the message that is being conveyed also to us still today. And so we thank you for your word, O Lord, for its teaching, uh, for its instruction, also for its encouragement, and also, O Lord, for its call, the message it gives for us to place our wholehearted faith in you, our sovereign God, so that we may know that you indeed are accomplishing your purposes in the earth. So bless us, we pray, as we hear your word here together. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. People of God, the sermon title is Faith in Fearful Times, as we focus here on the book of Habakkuk. And of course, there have been many fearful times in the course of history for God's people. You just have to think back of the Old Testament age when the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, the house of their bondage, where they'd spent 430 years. The Lord had finally delivered them from their bondage, their slavery. But all of a sudden they were faced with the enemy once again behind them, ready to swallow them up, ready once again to re-enslave them. So that when they came to the Red Sea, the Egyptian army had marched up behind them to overtake them. And the Israelites were in front of the sea. Where would they go? What would they do? But just at that time, when they were terrified and cried to the Lord, the Lord delivered them as Moses told the Israelites, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. God indeed brought them a great deliverance at that time. There was a time also later on in Israel's history when the army of Assyria had surrounded the city of Jerusalem and the Assyrian commander standing outside the city walls shouted to the people on the walls, the Israelites there, the people of Judah, shouting mockingly, give up, 
Yield your, yield your city to us. How can the Lord deliver Jerusalem out of your hand? And it was a threat that made the people tremble. So the king Hezekiah, who was the king at the time, went to the temple, bent before the Lord God, and pleaded with God that he would deliver his people from the enemy. God sent the prophet Isaiah to his servant, to Hezekiah, who made the promise that God would indeed bring about a great deliverance, which he did when the Lord sent his angel, the angel of the Lord, who slew 185,000 troops of the Assyrians that one night, so that the army of Assyria had to withdraw from the city. But you know, God does not always work that way in miraculous fashion to deliver his people. There were many Christians, in fact, in the New Testament age who also faced fearsome foes, who were persecuted even to death. They were told to recant their faith in Christ or to be thrown to the hungry lions or to be burned alive at the stake. What a horrifying prospect they faced. And yet many went bravely to their death and even offered amazing testimonies of their trust and faith in God. Well, today there are still many places where God's children are facing very fearful circumstances. Many true believers in different lands of the world do not know when they will be arrested, when they will indeed be put into prisons, when indeed they will be killed for their faith in Christ. I think of Christians in the land of Nigeria at this time. I've been reading of them lately, of how they're always under the threat of constant Islamic terrorists operating in that region who burn down their churches, burn down their houses, and do not hesitate to kill all those who claim to be Christians. Now, in some sense, we in the United States of America also face fearful times, though nothing at all really like Christians face in other places of the world today. We do live, indeed, still in a free country and can experience here security, but things are becoming uncertain, too, as to the future of God's people. To stay true to God's holy word, to remain committed to his word is not an easy task in our times, is under constant attack by those who have a secular anti-Christian agenda that they are seeking indeed to force upon us. And I know you're aware of all of these things. We may not be afraid for our lives physically, but increasingly Christians face things like losing their job or being taken to court or having to pay a hefty fine for supposedly violating some kind of an ordinance that they cannot accept or maybe facing other sinful demands placed upon them so that once again, they too are being hindered in the expression of their faith. And that makes me think of what kind of America will we be facing in the years and the decades that lie before us? What kind of a nation will it be for your little children, for our young people in the years that lie ahead? That's what makes us in some sense also fearful, fearful of what lies before us as Bible-believing Christians. Now we have to realize that Christians have always had to face their enemies and they've always had to stand up and endure in their faith. They've always had to deal with fear. But how must we deal with that fear? And you see, that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. 
from which I just read a few portions for you here this afternoon. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament, but whose message is anything but minor. Prophets that serve the Lord in the land of Israel, and in this case, Habakkuk in the land of Judah. Judah was a prophet who was prophesying the word of God to the people of Israel not long before they would indeed be driven into captivity by the Babylonians. We don't know very, we know very little about Habakkuk personally. We don't even really know what his name means, although some say it means embraced or loved by God. That's not a sure translation, but certainly it is the case that he did embrace and had a true love for God in his heart. He lived in that period when the prophet Jeremiah, whom we are more familiar with, one of the major prophets so-called, also prophesied to the people of Judah in the days of the last kings of Judah, Josiah and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. The northern kingdom by this time, the northern ten tribes, had already been in, uh, put into exile, were already scattered by the Assyrian Empire. But now the, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom was also facing exile. And you know what's unique about the prophecy of Habakkuk? And I'm not sure if you caught that when we read these brief portions from it here together. But what's unique is that this prophecy does not contain actually a direct message that God gave to Habakkuk to deliver to the people of Judah. No doubt later on, the people came to read this prophecy, became acquainted with its words and its message. But what is contained here in this book is really a dialogue, a dialogue, a conversation between the prophet himself and the Lord. Habakkuk in this prophecy is speaking to God, presenting his concerns to God, and then the Lord is responding to his prophet. And then the prophet responds again to the Lord, what he had said, and the Lord once again responds to his servant, the prophet Habakkuk. The prophecy ends then in chapter 3 with a prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk to God cast in the form of a beautiful poem or psalm. And so you have to think of this prophecy as now a conversation, as it were, between a child or servant of God and his sovereign Lord. And in that sense, we can say that Habakkuk represents all of us all of God's children, in all of our concerns that we too may present before the Lord as we seek the Lord to help us and also to encourage us and await his response. Even though, of course, for us, the response that God gives to our concerns is incorporated now in the Holy Scriptures, in the written word of God that we have. Now, with that in mind, giving that little bit of an introduction here, to Habakkuk, let me make three points of the message that is contained here in this book. First, there is in this conversation a message that shows us that faith has been shaken. It shows a shaken faith. Secondly, it shows a faith that is necessary, a faith that is needed. And thirdly, it shows to us a faith that in the end is triumphant. Yes, first of all, we see that the faith of Habakkuk was shaken here. And how come? Well, out of several concerns that the prophet had, and the first one that we read about in chapter 1 
was that Habakkuk observed many evils, many sinful acts being openly committed right in his own country or land of Judah. And we hear that in the very opening verses of the book, where Habakkuk says to God, for example, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, Habakkuk here is referring to what is happening in his own country of Judah. What's taking place in that land where he is called not only to live, but to prophesy. There was violence taking place around him. The laws of God were being ignored. The courts were not performing justice, but instead delivering perverse judgments. And what really troubled Habakkuk is that God didn't seem to be doing anything about this. God seemed to be turning a blind eye to what was happening. And so Habakkuk cries out to him, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong, he says to God. And don't we sometimes too want to say that as we look at what's happening around us, in our circumstances, in our nation today, You just have to listen to the daily newscasts on your radios or your televisions. They report on violence and iniquity, injustices every single day. There won't be much of a newscast left if it didn't report such things. And so it's a good question that we also often have in our hearts. Why does God allow all this evil to occur? Isn't he powerful enough to stop wicked people? from doing their crimes, terrorists from doing their deeds. Why does he permit all these wars that we hear about happening? Why does he permit the killing of millions of unborn children for no other reason than the mothers do not wish to bear them? Why does he tolerate the horrible deeds that we read about every day that kill and ruin people's lives? Why does he let people openly defy his laws? by marching, having marches of gay parades that being indeed are being promoted all even in our own local area here, celebrating people's sinful conduct. Yes, Habakkuk, like many of God's children, was shaken, shaken by God's seeming inaction in the face of evil. But you know, God was not indifferent to what was happening in Judah, nor is he indifferent to what is happening in our society and world today. You know what God told Habakkuk? He told the prophet, I know exactly, I know exactly what's happening around you and also in the land of Judah, the evil that's being committed there. But let me tell you what I've planned. But it's going to shake you. I'm going to send an enemy, an enemy against Judah, a powerful, fearsome enemy, and they will inflict severe punishment on the land. In fact, they will destroy the land and take all of its people captive. Listen again to verses 5 to 8 in chapter 1. Now here, here God is speaking to the prophet. And he says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. Because I'm going to do a work in your days that you would not believe if told. 
For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their judgment and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horses press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Then he mentions how that nation after nation is falling here to the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians. That's the answer that God gave to Habakkuk in his concern what's happening in Judah. And it shook the faith of Habakkuk. He, He didn't expect that response. He certainly knew about the Chaldeans and the Bab- or the Babylonians, but, uh, but that they would actually destroy the land of Judah. They would conquer the people, that they would bring them into exile. That shook the prophet to the core. It's not a precise parallel, but if I were to say to you that in years to come, there will be a group of terrorists who would be able to succeed in uh, detonating a nuclear bomb in our capital city, for example, or bring chaos in our land, maybe wipe out our government. Sounds impossible, to be sure. But what would our reaction be? Or if half a century from now, militant Islam would rule over the world? Or if perhaps China, communist China, would become the dominant power in the earth, And we would be a subjugated nation, in effect. You see, Habakkuk just couldn't believe that God would actually let the Babylonians run over Judah and conquer it. Because these Babylonians were just as treacherous and just as wicked as the Assyrians before them, who had already taken captive the northern kingdom. So why would God allow such an evil empire to execute judgment upon the people of Judah? That's what perplexed Habakkuk. That's what shook his faith in God. However, God had an answer to the perplexing question of Habakkuk. Why God would allow this to happen to his people Judah. And it brings us to my second main point then this afternoon, which is that God urges the prophet, as he thinks of this all, to live by faith. To live by faith. What they need was a firm faith in such fearful times. And that's indicated in that verse 4 of chapter 2. In chapter 2, God is speaking, really there he is speaking against, against the Babylonians. He begins his denouncement of them in verse 2, where God says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And that's a reference there to to Babylon, even though it's using the singular pronoun, his soul. He denounces Babylon for its pride. Maybe he's using the singular pronouns here because he's thinking about the ruler of Judah, the king of Babylon, who was proud and who is conquering nation after nation. Perhaps he's even referring to King Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered Judah, led its people into captivity, who was certainly a very proud king, as you know, from reading the book of Daniel. Yes, God certainly knew that the enemy that he was going to bring on Judah was also evil 
and also deserving of his judgment. Just because he would use the Babylonians to punish Judah for its evil and its sins and apostasy doesn't mean God approved of the Babylonians. He knew they were just as evil and even more wicked than Judah. And so in verse 8 of chapter 2, God assures Habakkuk that he would also punish Babylon. He says there about Babylon, because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Babylon also would join the heap, the ash heap of demolished empires. But in the meantime, how should God's people react in the face of such evil powers? And well, the last part of that verse 4 gives us the answer. God says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You have to underline that sentence. It's a key text, the key portion in the book of Habakkuk. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And we know that verse the best from its, the reference to it in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 17. It's a great Reformation text, as you recall. It's a text that opened the eyes of Martin Luther to know the true gospel, to know how he really could be righteous or just before God. The just shall live by faith. It was the text that made that brought conversion about in Luther's heart. And Paul was quoting, when when Paul wrote this in Romans, he was quoting really the the words of the prophecy of Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. The right shall live by faith. But there's there's a slightly different emphasis in Habakkuk as to the need for faith by God's people. The Apostle Paul in Romans is focused on the need for faith as a means by which we become right with God, by which we are justified before God. Faith, he says, is the only instrument by which we can indeed obtain the blessing of justification, forgiveness, and righteousness before God. We're saved then by faith alone. The righteous shall live by faith. We can only live before God if we are justified by faith in Him. It's not our works, it's not our good deeds that make us righteous before Him, for they're all imperfect. We only can stand before Him in the righteousness of Christ. But people of God, we don't only need faith to be justified. We also need faith to be sanctified. We also need faith in our daily Christian life. You can't just say, well, I'm justified. I believe in Christ. I'm saved. Praise the Lord. And then go out living a life that isn't truly honoring, glorifying to him. You have to live by faith each day. We have to trust in Christ each and every day again through his Holy Spirit's power, who enables us to live a godly life. We also need faith in times of crises, don't we? If we face, for example, a sickness or disease that may take our lives, if we are living with a sorrow or with loneliness or discouragement in our hearts, we need faith to be assured again of the love of God. We need to live by faith as we live our lives in our homes and in all things that we do. And so the point of a backup in Habakkuk is that the righteous person must live by his faith 
as he faces the fearful circumstances that surround him. The Babylonians were going to come to Judah. They are going to come and they would devastate the land and they would take its people away to Babylon. And God certainly knew they were a wicked and cruel nation. But the people, he says, have to live by faith in me during those fearful times. What kind of faith do we need? We need a faith in God's sovereignty. The righteous, the righteous person has to know that God is supreme over all the nations and the kingdoms of the earth. We need to remember that. Also in our times, things are constantly changing in the realm of national and world affairs. We don't know what's ahead in our land or in the world, but we know that there is a God who is sovereign. That will never change. There's a God who rules over all the affairs of men. We have to believe that firmly. That's what gives us assurance. We have to believe in the sovereignty of God. And chapter 2 of Habakkuk ends with, with a familiar text, also that you've heard before, no doubt, particularly at the beginning of a, a worship service. Oftentimes we, we hear this said in chapter 2, verse 20 of the prophecy. It says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, what is that temple? Where is God? Habakkuk is not referring here to the church, even though it is a fitting text to use, no doubt, as we prepare to worship our God, we must be silent before him. But the temple he's talking about here is heaven, where God lives, where God reigns all over the universe from his holy dwelling. And so if you read this verse in its context, Habakkuk is contrasting God there with the useless and lifeless idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold that the pagan peoples trust in and worship. But over against these idols, the Lord lives in his holy temple of heaven from which he reigns over all the nations. He is the sovereign God. Therefore, let all the earth keep silence before him. And so what we need is a faith that recognizes the greatness, the power, and the sovereignty of God. But then we also need a faith, dear friends, that clings to the mercy and the grace of God. We need faith in him to be able to deliver us, to be able to save us. The Babylonians may come and destroy Judah. Habakkuk needed to have faith. They could not destroy the righteous. The righteous would come to live by faith in God. The Lord God would save his own people. If not from exile, he would save them to belong to him during their exile. What God is saying through Habakkuk is something that you and I too have to remember. That we must believe in him and trust in him who is in control of our lives and indeed has saved us through his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him that we have salvation, that we have hope and trust in God. That faith is really expressed, for example, by the psalmist in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, but he lifts his voice 
and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, writes the psalmist, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And so what is God's answer to Habakkuk and to all his people who live in fearful times? His answer is simply, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in the Lord, who is the sovereign over all the earth, and who is the savior of his people, the strength of all who take refuge in him. What a tremendous message for Habakkuk, and also for God's people, those who were left in Judah at the time who were still godly, feared the Lord, and for God's people of every age and of all places and times. The righteous shall live by faith. And now how did Habakkuk then respond to that message? Well, that's what chapter 3 records of the prophecy. And so we come thoroughly and finally here then this afternoon to see here how it manifests there a faith that is triumphant, a faith that is victorious. I, I noted earlier as I began this afternoon that this last chapter of the book is cast in the form of a poem, as it were, of a song or a psalm, if you will, a beautiful psalm. It begins, therefore, in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And then there is a phrase added in your Bibles, in our Bibles, a little notation there which says, according to Shagayanoth. And Shagayanoth is simply a Hebrew term whose meaning we don't exactly understand for sure, but it probably was a musical notation of some sort because the end of the chapter and the end of the prophecy of Habakkuk reads to the choir master with my stringed instruments. What that suggests is that this last chapter can be used as a psalm and came indeed to be used by God's people as a song. Maybe that godly remnant of Judah sang these words when they were able again to return to their land and rebuild the temple. In any case, it's a beautiful prayer to sing and to read. And if you read it carefully, you know, most of this prayer is, is not asking for something. Only in verse 2 does the prophet present a petition when he prays, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk wanted God to show his might and his great deeds once again, as he had done of old in the sight of his own nation, of Israel, and also in the sight of all the nations. He wanted God to renew his word and works of grace and power to bring about revival, revival in the land, revival upon the earth. He says, in wrath, Lord, remember mercy. Yes, we, we see God's wrath certainly today in the conflicts, even in the storms, even in the pestilences, even in the diseases, even in the events of our times. But we pray that God will send us yet mercy, that we show mercy and bring many to his saving knowledge of him. And then Habakkuk come, recites some of the mighty acts that God did do in Israel's past. Like the one I began with here uh, this afternoon when, he, when God saved his people through the Red Sea. He refers to that great deliverance of God. And then towards the end of the prophecy, we hear the testimony of a, of a triumphant faith in Habakkuk. 
He had heard what God was going to do to Judah. His faith initially had been shaken. He says in chapter 3, verse 16, I, I hear and, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. He, he's thinking there again about the sound of the enemy troops drawing near. They're coming and he, he senses what's going to happen. He says, rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me as he thinks about the upcoming battles. But then he adds that he knows God is sovereign. He says, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Yes, now he firmly believes that God is in full control. And that even if God must judge Judah for its sins, their enemies too would suffer God's judgments. His righteousness will be manifested before all the nations. God's cause will triumph. And then listen to the triumphant faith of the prophet as he faces these hard and fearful times that lay ahead. He writes, beginning in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. There you have the expression of a triumphant faith. When a child of God can say, even if things go bad, even if life becomes difficult, even if I personally have to lose whatever I have, I'm kind of like the farmer who has no crop to harvest and no fruit to pick. Even if that should happen, even no animals are left in the barns. Even then, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Can you say that? Now, of course, you know, you and I can nod, yes, I, I can say that. If, but we have everything we need right now. And we have more than what we need. Well, let's say you did lose your health and strength. Let's say you did lose your business or your job. Let's say you lost all your savings. Let's say you even forfeited your house to foreclosure. Let's say you're young and your plans and your hopes for a career and vocation just are not working out. Or let's say you and I would come to that time when we will suffer persecution like many Christians are in various parts of the world today, where everything, everything is taken away from them. Even their freedom, and perhaps even their lives. If that should happen to us, would your faith in the Lord endure? Do you possess a faith that is triumphant, even in fearful times? Think of Habakkuk, and pray the words of faith that he expressed, that they may also express your faith in God. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, grant to us a triumphant faith. <clears throat> We've been reflecting upon the times that Habakkuk lived in the land of Judah. And as he too, O oh Lord, was shaken in his faith as he saw what was happening.
And even more shaken when he heard that your plan was to send a nation against them, an empire that would destroy them utterly, that would exile their peoples. An evil empire would take over. Lord, we realize again how oftentimes in, in the history of the world and of your church, such things have happened. Fearful times. And Lord, if we ever face fearful times as well, we pray that we may then also know that you are still God, sovereign, that you're still a God of mercy, and that we must live by faith in you at all times. May that faith indeed be a triumphant faith. May we know that whatever happens, when we belong to you, our sovereign God, then our life in you cannot be removed or taken from us. Our life with you is secure. It is indeed eternal. And you will ordain all things for the blessing of your people forever. May that be our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.